Hello, I'm Rabbi Avi Green. And I'm Dr. Akiva Daum. And, and welcome, welcome to Interesting, Interesting Questions. I am a rabbi with ordination from Yeshiva University and a doctorate in education. I have a medical degree with specialization in general and addiction psychiatry. In this podcast, we will seek to take different questions that come up in the Torah and evaluate them from a psychological standpoint as well as a religious standpoint. Please note that in many of these situations, we will be looking at things that may be viewed as controversial. It is specifically to bring about questions that many people have had and bring in to light different levels of evaluation and it'll get people to think about things in a different way. All right, welcome to Parshat Shoftim, as we invariably actually wind down. Um, Avi, in in this week's Parsha, we really begin with talking about how to handle, again, uh, having judges and and what to do and how to have witnesses and, and so on and so forth. And a lot of that makes a good amount of sense. I get it. What I'm wondering about is it says specifically when the judges are unable to come up with a clear decision, they are to go to the Kohen or the Kohanim and and ask for guidance. And my question to you is, what suggests that the Kohanim are going to have the answer if the judges who are uh, appointed and supposed to be very capable, and there's two or three witnesses, so we've made sure that we've gotten our information. What makes us think that the Kohen is going to have an answer? So, last week, we talked a lot about the social contract in Parshat Re'eh. And I think that the social contract there was really talking about the religious social contract. The idea of not worshipping other gods, and the idea of of who your um, who who your religious leaders are, I want to suggest that here it is much more about the social contract connected to law and connected to everyday life. And so, I want to enlarge your question to not just being about the judges asking the kohanim, but there seems to be a whole theme at the beginning of this parsha about hierarchy and leadership. And so the Torah is really setting up for us what that structure of hierarchy and leadership will be that that the Jewish nation, the Jewish homeland, right? Because that's what they're about to go into. They're about to go in and conquer Eretz Israel, and that is to become their home, hopefully indefinitely, from their perspective. But if that's the case, how are things going to run on a day-to-day basis? And so you need a structure of right, laws and judges and, and, and police officers and all of these things. And so here, this is where we set it up. And we say it's not going to be a secular uh, government. It's going to actually be a religious government. It's going to be a government where if the judge does not know the judge is going to go ask the Kohen, who in theory can go and ask God, right, or take it up the, up the ladder. And at that time, that was a legitimate answer because there was still communication that was happening directly with God. 
right? Um, alternatively, we could say if you're going to the Kohen, the Kohen might know because the Kohen is supposed to be the most knowledgeable in Torah law, right? As a good chunk of his day is meant to be sitting there studying it and learning it. And we can say the same thing about the king, right? Interestingly, when we when we look at the parsha, it says, "When you ask for a king, God is not demanding a king. God is asking for a king. God is saying that the people will ask for a king, and therefore, what we see happening is that the king has to write not one but two sifrei Torah, so that he will be familiar with the law. And if he has questions, he's supposed to go and ask, so that he really understands what he's writing." But here again, it is a government that is ruled by and supposed to have fealty to Jewish law and the Torah and our understanding thereof. And one of the pieces I think that is most important here is that it says that you're supposed to listen to the judges of your time, in your age. right? And the rabbis constantly say, you can't compare judges from one period of time to judges for another period of time. The judges we have today, the rabbis who are making decisions today, are no Moshe Rabbeinu. But that doesn't mean we get out of asking them our questions. And so here too, right, at the end of the day, you got to have somebody who's a final decisor. And in this particular case, it seems that the Kohen was going to be the final decisor. And so that's who they would go to. But I want to turn the question back to you, Akiva. Why can't I just say, let every person do what he or she wants? Aside from the religious piece, maybe, right? Just give me the, why do I need a king? Let me be the king of my own castle. Let me decide what I'm going to to do in my own realm. And then I don't have to worry about it. As long as I'm not hurting anybody else, why can't I just do what I want to do? So, Avi, I understand you're a fan of anarchy. Um, Sometimes. And, and I want to be very clear. There is a huge difference between anarchy and uh, entropy, right? Anarchy does not mean chaos. It does not mean a lack of order. It more so means a lack of one centralized order. At least that's my understanding of it. I'm, I'm not an anarchist, so best I got. Um, and I think really what you're getting at is, is the same reason why we have laws for most things. Even, even in the, you know, the Aserat Dibrod, right? The stuff that's mentioned is not the everyday stuff. It's the extremes because that's where we fall short and that's where we fail. It's not the, can I figure out that I should, you know, take care of, of my family, Right? That, that's not in the Torah. That's at least not in the Aserat Adibrod. And, and I don't know that it's explicitly in the Torah itself, other than the idea that there are extremes of things you should not do, cannot do. You cannot procreate with this or them. You cannot kill. You cannot covet. Right? They, these are the things, the extremes. And so, realistically, it goes back into that idea of Common sense is not common. And the understanding that following general rules, yes, most people can follow general rules even without being told. 
you, you I'm sure see this all the time, as an educator, you don't necessarily have to tell the students, or at least shouldn't, at a certain age, I'm giving you the pages and the chapters because I want you to read them, and not only do I want you to read them, but I would like you to actually pay attention to what you're reading, right? We don't have to give that level of explanation at a certain grade level. At the same time, we do have to give a rubric. We have people who, and the outliers, the ones who say, I don't have to do any of this, are the ones that the rules are really created for. It's, it's created for them to be able to say, this is what you really do need to do, and this is the boundary that you cannot cross. And as you said earlier, you then need people who are going to enforce that and um, determine what that boundary is and where we build a fence so that we don't cross that boundary. And uh, essentially, I have just justified uh, attorneys, so you're welcome. Um, but, but that's really what it is. I think it's not so much that we need leadership and we need these uh, rulers to be able to measure what's in the middle. But rather, the rulers are there to measure the edge. Avi, when we're talking about kings... It specifically says in the Torah that when you pick a king, they should not have too many horses, um, which is a little weird. Uh, but it also says about that they shouldn't be doing things basically just for themselves, which makes perfect sense. And I understand we already talked about, and I, I get the whole idea of them being knowledgeable in the Torah. But then we have the piece about too many wives. And we know that one of our greatest kings was known to have Lots and lots of wives. Something in the hundreds, I think, if not more. Um, how does that not violate this direct statement of, uh, unless we're to believe that that was not too many wives? So I think the answer is, it was too many wives. And you're speaking about King Solomon who on the one hand we say was the wisest of the kings, right? He was endowed with great wisdom from God, even from a young age. And perhaps one of the ways that he was trying to use this knowledge was that as he grew older, he would form alliances with many different um, kingdoms in the region, and he would do that through marriage, right? We are told that he met the Queen of Sheba. We are told that he uh, married a princess from Egypt. All of these were part of the goal in either expanding his kingdom or um, establishing peace with the kingdom, because if there is marriage between the daughter of the king in that country and, in, and the king in this country, well, clearly now you're family and you're not going to go to war with each other. And so this was the method that King Solomon used to create peace and prosperity in his kingdom. However, the challenge became 
that all of these wives each came with their own religions and their own demands. And while they did not necessarily lead King Solomon astray, for he was knowledgeable and, again, wise in his relationship with God, we see that the long-term impact was that it broke apart the kingdom because each wife had children and each of those children felt that he was the rightful heir to the throne. And therefore, that's when the kingdom began to break apart and there was significant infighting. Um, And while King David saw some of the same infighting within his family, he dealt with it from a military perspective. King Solomon never really had that taste for war or for fighting, and so he did not deal with it in any kind of physical way. And so I think we have to consider that when the Torah gives us these prohibitions and we go, well, you know, that doesn't apply to me. I know why that's there. I'm not, I don't need, you know, I don't need X or Y or Z. I don't need a kippah to remind me that I'm Jewish. Or I don't need to, uh, you know, to have an OU or a chafke on my food. I I can eat in that restaurant because I'm only going to eat salad or whatever it might be. I think that sometimes we may not just be fooling ourselves, but we may be setting ourselves up for a longer-term problem in the sense that our children, and I can say this as both a father and an educator, are always, always watching what we're doing and are much smarter than we give them credit for. And so when they see things and they put two plus two together, they say, oh, I see my parent saying one thing but doing something else. I see my parent not really committed to all of this Judaism stuff the way he or she says that they are. So I don't have to be either. And I think that while not everyone, in fact, no one is perfect, I think that working for consistency in our message of what we do and what we say and teach to our children is probably one of the most important things we can do. So Akiva, as a psychiatrist, I imagine that you have certainly read about and maybe even met some individuals who believe that they are prophets of God. And yet, today we would say, those people certainly need to see you and probably be medicated by you because they certainly are not the prophets of God. And so I'm hoping you can speak to us at least a little bit about how are you so sure and what can we do for them And then maybe we'll discuss a little bit about what makes somebody a real prophet versus a false prophet. So Avi, I suppose that the best answer I could come up with 
is that oftentimes the people who are hearing voices very rarely have said that they're hearing the voice of God. Um, in, in true psychotic illnesses, they're more often, at least in my experience, have said that they are hearing either demons or uh, hearing other people, unidentified people. I've heard mostly when people refer to themselves as hearing the voice of God, they're usually actually manic, which is more often seen in bipolar disorder, which, again, that still would be a psychotic symptom, but slightly different. Suffice it to say, in general... um, I think that when people are are hearing voices other than presumably the voice of God or others around them, they they're not functioning in other ways. And and the truth is I know that, you know, if we if we look at Navim, I'm sure that we can find other Navim who were not functioning as well and or I think we talked about uh, at least one, if not more than one, who would give prophecies that were not positive or popular and were then ostracized or even imprisoned because of those prophecies. That being said, in general, um, it's a good question. It's a really good question. And I think I'm actually going to, rather than present that I know for sure that I haven't medicated any prophets, I'm going to toss in your direction, is there anything that we know halakhically from the Torah that can help us to understand if this is a real prophet or not? And then maybe I can hopefully not medicate a prophet. So between this week's Parsha and last week's Parsha, it talks about what to expect from your prophets and what makes someone a false prophet. So A true prophet is someone who says, God has come and said, X will take place, and then it does happen. And this has to be something that happens outside of the natural realm. I can't say the sun is going to rise tomorrow morning because it doesn't take a prophet to to say that that's going to happen, right? That's that's observational. Um, False prophets, on the other hand, fall into two categories. One is someone who says that they are a prophet of God and then tell you to do things that go against the Torah and against what God has previously said. So those are a little bit easier to figure out, right? Uh, I am a prophet of God and I'm telling you God has now decided you should start worshiping idols or you should start bringing your children as uh, sacrifices, those would be false prophets. The more challenging false prophet is the one who comes and is actually giving messages from God, but they weren't his message to give. So in other words, it's like it's a party line on the phone. He's hearing God speak to another prophet, and then he is giving that prophetic vision over as his own. But it's not his message to give, because a lot of times the part of the importance of the prophecy is not just the message, but the messenger, right? Um, Their status in the community 
or their lack of status in the community. You just talked about how sometimes people were very unpopular for the prophecies they would give. It took a lot for somebody to be able to stand up to an entire community and say, you are sinning, and if you do not do the corrections that God is telling me you need to do, then you will be destroyed, right? That is not a popular thing to get up and say. Um, and in fact, for many prophets, they were risking their lives in doing so. And so it was impro- important that the, that the messenger be the right messenger and not just the message. And so that's what the Torah tells us about real prophecy versus false prophecy. The other thing that we know is the rabbis tell us that after the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, meaning the time where we close the Tanakh, real prophecy ended. And so we have stories in the Talmud of, of rabbis who went up and spoke with Eliyahu Anavi, or even went up to the Kisei HaKavod, the chair of God, but we don't call any of that prophecy. They weren't predicting what will happen. They weren't messaging, giving messages to all of B'nai Israel. And so instead, we say, at this point, there may not be prophecy in the world. And perhaps the one small, small drip of prophecy that is left uh, is said to be to, to go to women when they name their children. And that when you name your child, that gives them certain attributes connected to that name. And that's considered a, a, a small piece of prophecy. But other than that, we don't have prophecy in the world today. Thank you, Avi. I appreciate that clarification. And uh, rest assured, then, I have not medicated away any prophets. Um, and, and that gives, actually, rather valuable guidance because the fact remains is when I've met with people who have said that they are hearing voices or hearing what they would say would be the voice of God, more often the voice of a demon, which we... It's different. Right. Um, A lot of them have given examples of what you would call a false prophecy. So one such thing comes to mind where I had someone tell me that they were God and that they could sprout wings and fly off the unit at any point if they chose to. Clearly, that could be argued as a false prophet. Um, another, Another example that comes to my mind is... When, when people are just not able to articulate what it is that they are hearing, per se, or, or again, where you kind of suggested that that message would be skewed and not necessarily something that would have been delivered to the direct person. Um, certainly there's a lot of people who sometimes say, there's mumbling, it's not clear what I'm hearing. Um, which is really more of what I what I hear. There's there are people who have very clear and very specific uh, voices that they hear, and and interestingly, there's a lot of variety that we know that comes with hearing voices. One of the big questions is, of course, is it your own voice, uh, which some would deem it to be a conscience, 
At the same time, somebody who's suffered severe trauma may hear voices from their past of those traumatic experiences, or even um, if it wasn't one traumatic event, or perhaps they grew up in an abusive household, or were a victim of abuse in some kind, or some other kind of violent or, or significantly negative experience, that may so to speak, color their interpretation of things. And so many people with severe depression sometimes fall into the, into the habit of when they are not otherwise occupied, they will think about all the negative things about them, and it can sometimes be in the form of voices from their past or, or in some way that kind of experience. Another common experience that people will talk about are... Um, Hearing, sorry, that thought is gone. Um, but you know, a lot of it is there's a lot of other unique attributes of those individuals who are hearing voices. Um, there's also, by the way, completely normal hallucinations that can occur. So, when someone has lost a loved one they can have visualizations or feel as if they can hear the voice of the person who has passed. And from the psychiatric standpoint, we say that as long as that experience is uh, consistent with the relationship that one had with that individual, then it is not pathological in any way, shape, or form. Someone who is grieving the loss of a parent and they hear comforting words from that parent, if that is consistent with the relationship, then that is not in any way, shape, or form something that we consider to be uh, psychiatric pathology. It's normal. It's, it's part of the grieving process. Now, of course, if it is a situation where you're hearing something or experiencing something that is not at all consistent with that person, then we might say that that is a depression or some other kind of uh, diagnosis, depending on all the other factors. But so you can have normal hallucinations under certain circumstances. And I think that it's good to remember that there isn't one thing that we rely on to create a diagnosis. So just because someone says they're hearing voices there's a lot more that needs to be going on to be able to consider that to be a pathology, as you can see. And um, we really want to take the whole picture and the whole person. Another thing that I kind of would like to point out, and I'm curious if we were to look at it from a non-religious perspective, which uh, really neither one of us is, is necessarily apt to do, we may see that just like we look at other cultures and there have been times where the mentally ill have been treated either as um, human beings that are possessed or another some way uh, something to be hidden there are also stories and experiences where individuals with mental illness have been treated as clergy or other religious figures which we've seen in other cultures and and is something that again 
you and I have a hard time looking at it in that perspective because we, we don't look at this as without a religious background. We look at this as our Torah. And, um, but I bet if we had someone who was not of any religious background or not of a religious background that we ascribe to, they may have different viewpoints than the two of us. So as we said, the bulk of this week's Parsha is really about the designation of the social contracts from the legal standpoint and what it is that we expect and who our leadership can be, who we get our information from. And so my question for your Shabbos table is, if you had the opportunity to create your own hierarchy, how would you build that? Who would be in charge? Who would be the second? And how would that work to build up? Thank you for listening. If you'd like to reach us, you can reach us at iqdiscuss at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you and responding.